Thanks for that, Philip. Just a reminder that actually Marana and Billy will be with us, actually, in uh, three weeks' time, three Sundays' time. So it'll be an encouragement to hear from them. I also ask you, too, to be praying especially for uh, the Coxage family at the moment. Um, Sam had uh, his appendix removed during the week. Um, there's been some complications with that, and he's back in hospital again, so I'd please be praying for them, especially you know, the Ian's mum still in Sydney in hospital uh, in, a, in a critical condition. Uh, it doesn't look like she will actually come out of, uh, out of hospital, uh, so we need to be upholding the family there. Rochelle and Isabella are... Uh, are down there uh, supporting the family at the moment. Uh, Ian's obviously back up here with work right now. Uh, Rochelle doesn't enjoy the best of health at the, herself at this particular point in time. Uh, so the family really needs to be surrounded by, uh, by prayer at this, uh, at this point. If you've got your Bibles there, if you'd like to turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 15. I think we're going to be reading a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning. We're going to commencing at verse 11, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. And Jesus is teaching a parable to his listeners. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word to us this morning. Father, we pray now that as we delve further into this passage of Scripture, this familiar passage of Scripture, Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts to hear something fresh, something, Lord, that speaks to indeed our hearts today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This parable we've just read together has been known for centuries as the parable of the prodigal son. It's been the focus of books, of paintings, of poems, of music, of all kinds of different things. In fact, the famous English writer Charles Dickens called it the greatest short story ever written. In fact, Bible scholars have referred to it as the pearl or the crown of all of the parables of Jesus. And on the surface, it appears such a a simple and straightforward kind of story. But it is far from that because the truth in it is incredibly profound. And I think this story resonates so well with us, so well with people, because of its portrayal of, of great foolishness leading to utter despair, of heartache and of loss, and of all, all of these things, though, which are ultimately overcome by kindness and love and forgiveness. I mean, who of us at one time or another, hasn't found ourselves perhaps in the place of that wayward son. Through some foolish choices, perhaps ended up in a bit of a mess in our lives. Perhaps ashamed and alone, wondering how on earth we got here. And in our hearts, deeply longing for that forgiveness and that restoration. It's an incredibly moving story, this one. But if we focus just on the first part of the parable, then we'll miss much of what Jesus is trying to teach us today. Allow me to remind us of the context. If you go back to the first two verses of Luke 15, you'll notice in there that there are two groups of people that Jesus is speaking to. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to to him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them who were the ones that were drawing near to jesus the ones that people probably least expected to the tax collectors and the sinners what we might refer to today as the irreligious people the worldly kind of people that's who 
the tax collectors and sinners represent today in our passage and who they represented back in Jesus' day as well. But then there were the Pharisees and scribes. They saw themselves as the ones who were morally upright. They saw themselves as being okay before God, as righteous before God. And they were disgusted and started grumbling amongst themselves and to all who would listen about Jesus. They were disgusted that that this person who claimed to be such a, a wonderful religious teacher, a person who claimed to be close with God, would associate with such low lives as these tax collectors and sinners. In fact, they say he receives them. In other words, he welcomes them, he embraces them. And so in response to their grumbling and to their attitudes, Jesus launches into this series of parables, three parables here in Luke 15, to show those who think they're okay with God how wrong our perspective can sometimes be, not only about ourselves, but actually about God himself, about what God is like. Because as we see through these parables, Jesus is communicating in a very clear and undeniable way that God's heart is indeed for those who are lost from him, who are separated from him. Last week we looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and we saw the search that took place on the part of the shepherd and, and, the, and the woman who lost this coin, the, the search that they, that they, that they the, the lengths of the search that they went to in order to have these lost things restored to them and it showed us the extent that God will go after those whom are, who, who, who are lost to him. But in the third of these parables today, we're going to see that, uh, that there is... Perhaps not the, the, not the search that happens on the part of God, but the, but the reception that God gives when those who recognize their lostness with him actually come back to him. Here in this parable, there are three main characters. We've had that pointed out already to us this morning. There is the father and the two sons, the younger one and the elder son. And we need to recognize that here in this passage that the, the two sons are representing those two groups of people identified right the way back at the beginning of the, of the chapter. And we read as we go through that the younger son comes to his father and demands his share of the property. There was a man, he said, who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me Give me my share of the property that is coming to me. We read those words and because we are far removed from that particular culture and context, we fail to see so often the absolute shockingness of of, of what is taking place here. This was almost unheard of in this culture for a, for a son to come and, and demand from his father his share of the inheritance. It was almost as though it was, uh, this, this son was spitting in the father's face. It was a, an immense show of disrespect on the part of the son for the father. A man's property or estate was only divided among his children upon his death. 
And so in, in some ways, this son was basically saying to his father in an indirect way, I wish you were dead. All I'm interested in is what you can give me, what I can profit from you. It's interesting that Jewish law stated that if a son actually acted this way towards his father, then the father actually had the right to throw him out of the house and disown him, to beat him severely and even to call all the men of the village together and stone his son to death. It would have been quite within the father's rights to do that. But to compound the horror even more in his listeners' ears... Jesus then says that the father actually gives the son what he asked for. He accedes to the son's wishes and desires. And again, in that kind of culture, which valued honour and respect above everything, the father, allowing him, the father giving the son you know, the, the, his share of the inheritance just shamed him even more in people's eyes. This father who had treated his son, had loved his son so incredibly, provided him with all that he needed for his son to turn around and throw it all back in his face and say, you know what, the only thing I'm really interested in is your money and nothing else. Can you imagine the heartache in that father's life right there and then at that point? The father gives him what he wants. And we're told that a short time later, the son gathers together all these things. Probably took a bit of time for the father to actually, you know, get the, 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 share of the son's share of the inheritance together. But he, he gets it together and as soon as he gives it to the son, the son's off. He's out of there. It says that he journeys to a far country where he proceeds to squander all that he has in reckless living. You know, that journey to a far country, it begins first and foremost right here in our hearts. Before our feet set out on that journey, our heart has already gone there. Remember Jesus back in Luke Back in, uh, I think it was Luke 9, again, I, we'll, I'll re recall that a little bit later on. It'll come to me in a, in a little bit. But Jesus says, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember that? Remember those words of Jesus? Where was that man's treasure? That man's treasure was in the money was in the wealth, was in the kind of lifestyle that that money would actually give him. And so his heart had long departed from that house. His heart had long departed from the father. His heart had long departed from all that the, the, the father had, had blessed him with and encouraged him in. His heart had gone a long time ago. And his feet were just following after where his heart already was. 
And folks, for us today, there are so many so many things that, 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 that can entice our hearts. There are so many things that can entice our desires and our passions that can stir us up within us that if we go after those, if we set our hearts on those and not on God and, and forget about the kind of God that, that he is and the kind of father that he is and all that he's provided for us and all that he's given us, then it won't be long before, you know, when our hearts are already gone, you know, our hearts have already journeyed away that our feet will follow. And sadly for the people who have, who have you know, already taken that journey out of church, away from their Christian life, away from their Christian family and that sort of thing, away from God, their hearts had already gone a long time ago. And so we need to guard our hearts. Proverbs reminds us, says, Guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. We need to place a guard around our hearts. We need to be reminded of what is truly important and significant and meaningful in our lives today. The world will try to tell us that there's all the glitter and all the, you know, all the, all the, 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 the glory and all the stuff out there that is so enticing and so wants to take us out away from God. The devil is behind those lies. There is an enemy behind those lies. An enemy that wants to, to take, and as we've been reminded this morning, he wants to divide and distract and destroy our lives. And so we need to place a guard around our hearts. And the Father, we see an example of how God allows his creatures to exercise their own free will. God allows us to choose. He allows us to go our own way, even if it might end up in heartache. And can I tell you this this morning, that just because you appear to get your own way and that things you know, might be going well in the interim, in the short term, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the right path. For this young man, everything was going swimmingly in his life. He just received this huge amount of money and he left, the, he left home with the, with, the, with the money jingling in his, in his money bag and, and visions of grandeur and living it up you know, before his eyes. He thought that his life was going great. Just because we get our own way doesn't necessarily mean that we're on the right path. You know what the father had worked so hard all his life to acquire. This son blows his entire share on satisfying his selfish passions and desires. It says that he took a journey to a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living and he did it until there was nothing left. He spent everything. And when the money ran out, famine hit the land. 
And this man, it says in the passage here, finds himself in what? In great need. In great need. Starving. And he's forced to resort to the most demeaning of chores that a Jewish man could actually you know, have before him. He was sent into the field to feed pigs. Now, for those of you who know your Jewish culture and, and, and background and that sort of stuff, you know that pigs were unclean animals. They were seen as probably the most filthiest unclean of all the animals. You've only got to look at their lifestyle, how they're rolling around in mud and stuff like that. And this man has to literally cast his, himself at the mercy of the owner of the pigs and beg that he be able to, you know, that he go out and feed these pigs. And it says that he longed, he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. In other words, he wanted, he, he longed to actually just fill his own belly with this horrible pig swill of food. That's how low he got. I don't think a person could get any lower than this man at this particular point in his life. It's interesting that it reminds us that, you know, living a sinful, selfish lifestyle so often leads us to a place that we never ever thought we would get to in our lives. Where we indulge the pleasures of the, and, and the passions of our hearts and our desires, these worldly passions and desires, it will take us to a place we never ever thought we would get to. In going his own way, the young man thought that he would find himself. But ultimately all he does is he loses himself. And folks, that's what sin does. It promises us so much. It promises freedom. But instead it brings slavery. It promises success. Ultimately, it brings failure. It promises life. But ultimately, leads to death. It tells us to follow our own inner desires and to indulge our passions and our wants. It encourages in us the attitude, give me, give me. One wise person once said that a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just what he likes. Need to think about that for a moment. A man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just what he likes. It's at this point that Jesus says in the parable in verse 17 that the man finally comes to his senses. It says, when he came to himself, when he came to himself, and he finally asks himself the question, what am I doing? What am I doing? Good question to ask, isn't it? And I think it's a question that many of us need to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Uh, 
We need to come to ourselves and we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Where is our focus? Where are our hearts and to what do our hearts belong to? And where do I find myself in life right now? Because I guarantee that for some of us here in this building this morning, we find ourselves right where this young man finds himself, here amongst the pigs. We find ourselves in a place where we really don't want to be. We find ourselves in a place where we think, how on earth did I get here? And thankfully, through his grace, God is able to bring us to that point in our minds and in our hearts and say to us, what are you doing? We need often to come to ourselves. And the man realises just how good life was back at his home. And he realises, though, that Although life is good back there, he's probably burned all his bridges with his father. How on earth does he, does he, does he go back in that situation? And he thinks to his, in his own mind that the only way back is to go and throw himself at the mercy of his father and say, could you just please take me back as one of your hired servants? I'd rather just be a slave in your home than be here. And so he concocts this plan in his mind. He says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to, and I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess my foolishness before him and beg for him to take me back as his servant. And so that's what he does. He, he, he gets up from where he is and he heads on back. And we see in this this wonderful picture of what true repentance looks like. You know, sadly for us today, we, we often our, our, our sense of repentance and, sorrow and, and being sorry for something gets a bit skewed. We often think that repentance is just all about remorse. But it's more than that. Repentance, true repentance, is not only a remorse in our hearts, but it is a recognition of, of wrong and an admission of of being wrong it's an admission of choosing to go the wrong way it's this remorse in our hearts it's a, and it's also a realization of before god our unworthiness but a desire for restoration and reparation this young man knew that the only way back was for him not only to, to admit his wrong, not only to, to be sorry for what he'd done, but to come and say, I know that, that what I've done has offended, has caused, has caused hurt, and I need to repair that. I, it needs to be fixed. And folks, many of us need to learn true repentance. Yeah. 
We need to learn true repentance in our relationships with one another, in our families, amongst our friends, within our church family. But ultimately, we need to learn true repentance before God. To come before him and say, God, you are right and I was wrong. Your way is right and my way is wrong. And I am unworthy to receive anything from you because I don't deserve it because of my sin. And to come and throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And to have a commitment and a conviction in our hearts to say, God, I want to follow you and walk in your ways from now on. It's at the point of repentance that this man's life starts to turn around. And I think there's something profound in that. That if there are things in our lives we need to turn around, then maybe it's time that we need to assess whether or not there are things we need to repent for. And we need to get right with God and with one another. As the son makes his way down the long road leading up to his father's house, the father sees him. His father saw him. We see that in verse 20. And then it says, And in seeing his son... There is no anger, there is no rage, there is no malice, there is no rolling of the eyes or shaking of the head. But we read what? We read that he feels compassion. Compassion. And he runs, which in that culture again was something a a, a dignified man never ever did. He never ran, but he runs to his son. And in some of the older versions it says he falls on his neck. In other words, he embraces him and he kisses him. Embraces him. And he kisses him. Because the father is so overjoyed at his son's return. That's got to be one of the most moving images in all of scripture, hasn't it? That image of the father running and falling on his son's neck, of embracing him and and hugging him. And as the son makes his heartfelt apology... He says, Father, I know that I have sinned against heaven and against you. And as he's trying to get these words out of his mouth, his father says to his servants, he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and and shoes on his feet and, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The son wanted to come back as a servant, but those images, the robe, the signet ring, the shoes on his feet, was all a symbol of restoration to full sonship in the father's house. That's amazing. 
How often do we kind of forgive in the way that, yeah, we sort of say that, yeah, we forgive you, but we expect some kind of, you know, some kind of, uh, of um, payment from the other person towards us? God's not like that. God instead just pours out his grace, grace upon grace upon grace. The Father holds nothing back. His grace is poured out lavishly. 1 John 3, 1, which is one of my favourite scriptures in terms of speaking of the lavishness of God, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Or in Romans 5, 8, where Paul says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, whilst we were still enemies with God, God sent his son Jesus to die for us, that he might bring us to himself. The fattened calf is killed. The... Again, the fattened calf was something that was, uh, was, was held on. It was, it was the, probably the most treasured possession the father had apart from his sons. And he's, he says, bring it and kill it. And the whole village invite to celebrate. What an amazing picture of the, the grace and the forgiveness of God in that. And you know, Jesus could have finished this parable right there at that point, couldn't he? And that would have been an amazing story, an amazing teaching that Jesus had given. In fact, you know, it would have been the perfect place to end it because it's a happy ending. And doesn't everyone love a happy ending? But he doesn't. Because then we're told at this point the eldest son returns from working in the fields and he hears all the celebrations going on and he asks one of the servants, he says, What's, what's happening? What's going on? Why all the noise? And his servant tells him that your younger brother, he's returned, and, and your father, he's pulled out all the stops to celebrate. He's, he's killed the fattened calf, and he's, he's invited the whole village to the house to, to rejoice. And the older brother hears this, and he is furious, and he refuses to join in. Now, I kind of got a feel a little bit for the older brother in this. I mean, his younger brother, I mean, he's done the wrong thing, hasn't he? I mean, he's turned his back on the family. He's gone away. He's lived it up. He's ignored all of his responsibilities. He's thought only of himself. And then when he comes home completely destitute, his father welcomes him back with open arms without so much as a, well, what have you got to say for yourself? You've got to understand, you've you, you got to feel for the older brother here. It just doesn't, in his eyes, seem fair. It's interesting that Tim Keller actually points out that in that particular culture, you know, when the younger son actually left home, it should have been the responsibility of the older brother to go after him and bring him back. That was the older brother's responsibility. But he doesn't, because he doesn't care. And in that, he reveals his lack of love for his brother and for his father. 
And that's seen again in his response. When the father comes out to him, when, he, when the father hears that the older son won't come in, he goes out to him and he pleads with the older brother to come in and join in the celebrations, to be reconciled to his younger brother, to be glad by the fact that he's come home, that he's back where he belongs. And it's at precisely this point that the parable takes this unexpected turn. Because as we see the the heart of the older brother exposed, a shocking truth is made known to Jesus' listeners because it is then the elder brother who finds himself on the outer, the one who is alienated ultimately from the father. The Pharisees and the scribes, they know who Jesus is talking about. Here are the ones that think, you know what, we're cool with God. You know, we follow all the, we, you know, we do all the right stuff. And in fact, you know, the, the son actually then goes and explains to his father. He says, you know what? He said, look at these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. But, you know, you've never even given me a young goat that I can celebrate with my friends. He's saying, you know, I've done no wrong. I've been obedient. I've been good. I deserve to be rewarded. And how many of us here, particularly among Christian people, people who who say that they're good with God, how many times does this happen that we think that because we're good, because we we, we think we do the right things in our lives, that God owes us, that God should reward us? But when we think, you know, when we sort of get so caught up with with what God can give us, we're no different than the younger brother because all we're interested in is actually what the father can give us rather than the relationship between son and father, between us and God. And the danger for us, you know, you know, as part of this church is that we will fall into that trap of thinking that our righteousness, that our righteousness is good enough and that God owes us because of that. And for people who, you know, who even in their lives who may not even be religious people but just think that, you know what, I'm living a kind of good life here. You know, I don't do anything wrong. I know I'm sort of fairly upstanding kind of a citizen and things like that. You know, I, I see myself as being kind of righteous in my eyes. Jesus says here the surprising thing in this parable is the fact that it's those who think they're okay are not but only those who know that they're not okay, who know that they need to come and fall on the mercy of God and and rely on his grace and his compassion, his forgiveness, it's only those people who ultimately get to join the party with God. As we come to the end of this parable, the question that that stands out through all of this to to us as readers, as people who are observing this passage this morning, who are sort of kind of standing on the outer looking in, Jesus wants us to ask ourselves the question, which brother are we in this parable? Which brother are we? 
Which, which son best illustrates you in your life right now? Because Jesus points out through this parable that only one is truly found and alive. Only one of the brothers. And the path to life is found only through faith in Jesus Christ and a realisation on our part that we are completely unworthy and undeserving because of our sin. But as we come in that state, as we come before God along with the Apostle Paul and say, God, we are the chief of sinners, that God's embrace awaits us as we repent before him. Out of the two sons in that passage, I'd want to be the one who feels the embrace of the father, wouldn't you? Yeah. There's only one way we can experience that, folks. And that's as we come and we place ourselves humbly at, the, at God's feet each and every day, recognising that it doesn't matter how good we are, we will never be good enough. Father, this morning, this passage is a beautiful passage reminding us afresh of your incredible mercy and grace, of your compassion, of your forgiveness, of your goodness, of your kindness, of your incredible and amazing love. But it also reminds us afresh this morning of our own hearts that, Lord, unless we come as that young man did, repentant before you then we can never taste that kind of embrace and love but instead that we will always be on the outer my prayer is that each and every one of us will know that embrace and will want to walk daily in your presence and in your love amen We're going to conclude our service this morning by singing a song with amazing words to follow that up.